Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning, Jacob, and good morning, listeners. Hey, good morning, listeners. Um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio this morning. Welcome. And it's 12 degrees outside. It's 7 a.m., of course. And let's start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land. Uh, we pay our respects to the traditional owners, the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to the elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. We are broadcasting from stolen land. Mm. And yet always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. That's correct. Okay, news. There's lots happening. Well, I think um, it probably be appropriate to talk about the kind of first positive, the big positive news story of the week. Um, and that is, um, as reported here in an article in Green Left Weekly, um, blackmail charges brought against um, construction and the CFMU um, union leaders John Sector and Sean Redden were dropped by Victorian prosecutors on May 16th in a major embarrassment for the federal government's um, trade union Royal Commission um, police and prosecutors. Um, and to give a bit of um, detail on what happened, um, per- prosecutors dropped the charges against Sector and Radden at a pre-trial commutal hearing in Melbourne's Magistrates Court in a backdown that raises serious questions about the decision to charge two men and the credibility of the Royal Commission into the trade union governance and corruption, which was then co- which was called at the time by then Prime Minister Tony Abbott in 2014. Um, Persecutor Ray Gibson told the court that, you know, after a careful assessment of the evidence, we've heard I have instructions to withdraw the charges against both um, accused. Um, so just to give a bit of information and background, the charges stemmed from these allegations um, that the pair threatened to blockade borrow plants and trucks if the company did not stop supplying concrete to Melbourne work sites run by construction site Grocon. At the time, um, the CFMU was fighting to appoint occupational health and safety representatives at Grocon sites. And, you know, they basically alleged that Persecution alleged that blackmail took place between a meeting that occurred somewhere between Sector, Rodin and Borough Executives, Paul um, Dalton, in Melbourne back in 2013. Um, But, of course, the the decision to drop these charges was partly based on the performance of Dalton and Head during a cross-examination in the communal hearing. So, yeah, I think this is quite um, a significant kind of news story, uh, especially in light of the kind of attacks um, that... uh, that the CFMU has been um, under by the by the by the government, and I think you know it, it definitely following you know that very large mobilisation um, of you know over ten thousand workers. Um, what was quite clear was that at least a significant proportion of those workers who marched out of the ten 
uh, out of the 10,000 were all construction workers. So um, it shows that there's a significant power um, and significant weight, social weight that the CFMU has, and it's fantastic, I think, that they resisted this sort of, um, you know, intimidation from the capitalist state. That's right. So... Um that's a big victory for the union movement because the union, that particular union, CFMU, has been under enormous attack from the government for a very long time, since, since the 80s, when they were the, the, the previous um, life, they were called BLF. I remember during the nurses' strike, they were the only ones who came around, supporters with, with, with Gusto. And um, they've always wanted to somehow smash this union because they, they really are the most powerful union among all the unions that exist in Australia. And, I mean, the Maritime Union is a strong one too. <coughs> but this, this, this union hunting by the government has been a habit of labor and liberal. Uh, liberal more so, but labor is the one who, uh, in fact, started the attacks earlier on. So this is a massive victory relative to the history of um, Union hunting by the uh, ALP and the Liberal Party. So well done, um, CFMU, and um, I believe they're going to have uh, a so, uh, they're going to sue the government because they've suffered. The, the, those two fellows have suffered so enormously over the last two, two and a half years, almost three years, yeah. with this um, um, charge or supposed mm. charge. Against. I think one important um, historic context as well is um, the CFMU uh, have always are always under constant attack, yet it's never, you know, the the media, mainstream media will always like to portray it as like a case of like, oh, corruption in the trade yeah, yeah, unions. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, that's but not re- corruption business, right? But, this is only in the union. Yes, but really the main reason that, um, that the CFMU has always taken industrial action has been in defence of their members, especially around workplace safety. In fact, this whole issue... Um, the way it came about was because the CFMU, um, especially the trade union leaders, John Sector and Sean Redden, were standing up for their workers That's and standing right. up for their safety. And so they should. Um, and also what um, what is also different is that if this case was successful, which unfortunately, um, which fortunately it wasn't, I mean, uh, then they could have been jailed for up to 10 to 15 years, mm. which mm. would have been a huge blow huge. to you. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and talking about unions, there's another story here where the CPSU, which is the Community and Public Sector Union, one in, it's, um, covers the public, um, Australian public service, of course, and they're reviewing the Australian public service, apparently the, the government is, and this review... Um, it's been t- talked about in this article. The government announced a wide-ranging uh, review into the Australian Public Service on May the 4th um, with the former Telstra Chief Deputy David uh, Thody as chair of the panel. Only one member of the panel has worked in the public service, while four of the six members have backgrounds in multinational corporations, including one who was a member of the Business Council of Australia and the right-wing think tank of Centre of Independent Studies. So the CPSPU National Secretary Nadine Flood said that it's, it's a make-up that understood, um, underscores how fundamentally the Turnbull government misunderstands the Australian Public Service and undermines its role in shaping the future of Australia. So this is basically an attack on the public service, so anyone working in the public service it can expect 
the worst kind of cuts, although they've been cutting um, public service for a long time now. This is going to be a massive cut, I'd say. Um, and the practical effect of the um, this this cutting has has to be that more funding is to go from public services. Bad enough, the ABC is copying millions of dollars worth of cuts. So the actual workers, whether they work at Centrelink or they work in the tax office, they're looking at uh, sack, sacking or redundancy in the in the in the, the mouth. I'd say. I mean, one example is a wacky policy that the APS must be smaller than when John Howard lost office, um, with an average staffing level cap drive cap driving expensive and damaging contracting out and privatization. So they want to outsource all the services. In fact, there was talk about outsourcing even Centrelink at some point. And uh, they they have raised it at some point but haven't actually followed through. But I'm sure this is going to come down like a big X on um, the public service. So look out for that one. Now, the um, other issue that I, th- I think I'll touch on is a budget. Um, so the wealthy corporations, as we know, are going to enjoy a windfall while the um, everyday person is going to be suffering what they call a trickle-down gain or whatever that means. No, I don't think the trickle-down economy is believed by even themselves, never mind anybody else out in the open. The government has chosen to promise budget repair to introduce sweeping corporate and income tax changes with $80 billion in corporate tax cuts now. Um, Locked in, and the government will announce a seven-year overhaul of income tax that will result in tax revenues dropping up by about 140 billion, and um, a serious undermining of our progressive taxation system. So, the government's changes to income tax would mean that a worker on minimum wage of 41,000 would be on the same rate as the person with income of 200,000. So, there are the tax changes that have been proposed. Um, so. Research by um, Australian Institute released in February showed that corporate tax cuts were unpopular and more people uh, favoured government investment in public services as a way of support, support unemployment and economic growth. Um, no amount of government spin can hide the fact that this is a budget for big business and the rich. In addition to the tax cuts, the government... In addition to these tax cuts, the government is budgeting for $40 billion in savings, supposedly. The Federal Public Service will lose 1,280 jobs. So this is going to get worse once the previous uh, plan um, I mentioned that the CPSU has um, talked about and flagged and will be campaigning against. So the federal the funding cuts to vocational education will, contain, will continue 2.2 billion, and this cut will be from university sector. Um, of course, we know about the ABC, 84 billion. Labour um, Shorten and Chris Bowen um, were falling over themselves, so declared their support for the income tax cuts, while the ACT Secretary Sally McManus declared the tax measures as an attack on progressive um, taxation. So uh, McManus said on the 8th of May, the Turnbull government has chosen to do the bidding of big business, well, they're basically salespersons anyway, for offshore investors and um, already wealthy and, and neglect the need of working people. So this debate will, will go on as this government introduces all these measures and uh, sets up all these committees that will cut the living, um, any small uh, 
gains uh, the workers are going to make out of any um, EBA they're going to fight hard for on the ground is bad enough. The EBAs have been cut to the to the core uh, by so many companies. Now this is going to get worse. But um, it's just looking pretty bad. Um, now, any other stories, Jacob? I wanted to talk about um, just maybe we'll probably going to be talking about a, a lot on this um, program, but you know about the recent events in. Um, Palestine. Yes. Um, but something I wanted to kind of highlight was, uh, you know, um, maybe for those who haven't been following the news, what has ba- basically happened has, you know, uh, Israel has ba- has participated uh, in a massacre of more than 50 Palestinians on May 14th. 60. No, it's, can't, can't, no, it's 60. 60. It's come to 60 at this point, and it's ongoing repression of protesters participating in the Great March of Return that kind of began in Gaza on March the 30th. Um, and, you know, it, uh, on May 50th kind of marked the kind of 70 years of our Nakba, which is, you know, yes. the day that um, the historical moment where, you know, Israel basically took um, Palestinian land, yeah, yes. and it's um, and it's not really as Palestinian kind of activists, um, you know, say it's not really it's not an anniversary to remember. It's basically marking that it's been seventy years of ongoing resistance of of Palestine um, of Palestine against Israel and the occupation. Um, but I think what's interesting in is um, you know. Uh, countries from across South America have, you know, denounced Israel's massacre of more than 50 pal- um, of, you know, not 50, this is what it says in the article, it's now 60. Um, they have condemned, also condemned, um, the United States' decision to move its embassy to Jerusalem and pledge support to the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign against Israeli apartheid. Um, and some of the, some of the countries, there's Bolivia present overall, Evo Morales uh, strongly condemned the brutal Israeli crackdown on Gaza protesters, tweeting on May 15th. And, you know, there's all, um, Venezuela's President Nicolas Mondura also condemned the, um, the killings. And of course, um, there's also, there was also some, um, or, there was also students, um, protesters also then took to the streets on, on Argentina, Bolivia and Brazil and Chile on May 15th in solidarity with the Palestinian people, while students occupied the main administrative building at Chile's la- largest public university. It's a pity they didn't talk to the American embassies because that's what this is all about, isn't it? Mm. Ivanka opening with glee and glamour, the American um, uh, embassy in Jerusalem and, and declaring Jer- Jer- Jerusalem the t- the capital of yeah. Israel. And some more significant um, expressions of solidarity that happened was, um, okay, so probably listeners heard that Israel won Eurovision, uh, oh, which was yes. a complete disgrace. In fact, I don't even know why. Israel is in Eurovision to begin with. I mean, well, as far as you know, they're not even part of Europe, but yes. uh, that's besides the point. But what was um, very significant is apparently I think the next Eurovision contest is actually going to take place in Israel. Of course. And um, the uh, the second um, the I I don't know the name of this Iceland musician, but the but the Iceland musician and band that came second in the Eurovision running for. Um, or you're running for the Iceland team or so on, um, basically said that they will not attend uh, Eurovision next year um, because they do not want to participate in, you know, endorse the, you know, the genocide of Israel uh, right. against Palestine. So I think that's a good, a good start, of, a very good of solidarity. Start. 
um, especially since it comes from uh, musicians who are not typically p- political. Well, I'd be surprised how many musicians are political, actually. Oh, well, specifically for this musician, they didn't seem that yeah. political apart from when well, they... The Eurovision-type ones, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, it, it always me, why is Australia there? It's not part of Europe. It's almost schizophrenia in this country. They want to be part of Europe, but they also want to be part of Asia. It, it's a constant battle for people who are thinking through mm. this issue. You know, are you European or are you not? Mm. I think um, probably the reason why is because I think SBS gets a lot of money from Eurovision to <laughs> screen Eurovision, and so in exchange, maybe they get it. Yeah, but Eurovision's come from other countries too, like China and, and Japan, and you know they're all crazy about this sort of song contest. It's music. People want to listen to music mm. and watch dances, you know, and every country does that. It's, it's just. The schizophrenic nature of the identity uh, the, the invaders are going through, and that's what's reflected. I think Israel is, is, is way, way out of the question anyway. All right, let's do one more story, and we'll go to the interview that I, the first interview, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at the Mara Darling, because that's always been a very uh, difficult topic. And um, despite, I think, um, uh, the Monday program, channel, not Channel 4, What's the, what's the program called? 8.30 on, on ABC? They, they covered the Murray Darling River and the theft of um, um, water. You mean 8.30 on, at night? Ma, ma, yeah, what is it called? I think it's Four Corners. Four Corners. I knew it's Four Something. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. I forgot my Alzheimer's kicking in. Anyway, the federal government reached agreement with the Labour opposition to pass amendments to the Murray Darling Basin Plan. Uh, on the 8th of May, and effectively ensuring less water will flow to the environment to the southern basin. So the deal sidelined negotiations with um, crossbench senators and scuttled a move by the Greens to request a disallowance, disallowance uh, motion for the vote uh, because of environmental, environmental concerns. In response, Senator Sarah Hanson-Young tweeted, Labour sells out the environment, the River Murray, and ultimately they sold out South Australia, doing, doing a deal with the National Party to cut environmental flow is in favour of um, big corporate irrigators, um, and that says everything, she said. So practically the, the, the bipartisan amendment means that this is an amendment, of course, they have passed on the Murray-Darling Basin Authority body. Um, so it means that um, a billion litres um, will not come from the direct water buy- buybacks from the irrigators and will instead be recovered through sustainable di- diversion limits. And they go into all these details, which pretty hard for people to understand. But the fact, remember, is that the environment has lost out and big business has actually won big time with the distribution of water from the Murray-Darling Basin. And the the case of the the private uh, farmer who stole millions of litres, I think, from the Murray-Darling, if I remember correctly, um, that case has not really been uh, brought to the fore in, in this whole thing because people are using the, the wa- using water willy-nilly and the the monitoring, I suppose, is just so ineffective. So well, now we're in a situation where the Murray Darling might just die the way they're, they're mm-hmm. misusing the water and that's going to be a disaster in the long term. There's all short-term planning and... Um, we just have to fight back on this, and I think the committees are running along that line, and the farmers are fighting against it. All right, now let's go to the first interview.
Okay, um, that was Balloon, and I sort of tapered off a little bit there um, by the la- the group called Last Connection. Now, this interview that I recorded actually literally last night um, is with our children, who's uh, the spokesperson for the um, Socialist Party of Malaysia. He did an analysis of the direction in which the um, elections and the, the fallout from the elections is, is traveling in Malaysia. So here is our children. Thank you so much for offering your talk to 3CR, um, Arul, and exciting times in Malaysia. Yes, it is. After 60 years of the collapse of the Barisan National Government, I think everybody is uh, very excited here. Yeah, okay. Things have rolled along very quickly. Anwar was released today, and you all, or yesterday, was it? Yesterday. Yes. Yesterday, and you all had a rally around that, didn't you? Yes, there was a huge rally yesterday, 10,000 people. Mm. So, what what is the the the, the um, opinion of people? I mean, it, this is like a roller coaster. Nobody seems to know uh, what to feel. You know, people overseas, like myself, think, "Oh my God, something exciting is happening," and I'm not there to see what's going on. I've got a few other friends who feel the same way. So, how are people feeling? And you know, what did, what are they expecting? You think? See, I would call this like a silent coup, you know, because nobody expected it. And uh, even Anwar yesterday said that he didn't expect it. It, it was, he was surprised with the results. Nobody thought the people are going to make a change because there was no clear indication, especially from the rural population, which actually are the decision makers in elections in Malaysia. So therefore, you know, it, it seems as if uh, no one expected it and then it happened. And now everybody is uh, very excited and we are back to Mahade, you know, which is, I think, uh, something uh, nobody would have ever expected. You know, I think it's a precedent even in the world today for yes. a person 93 years old to come back to power. True, true. So now that Mahathir is back, what is his agenda that's what everybody's curious about or, or very, you know, cu- uh, very anxious to know what are his plans. You see, one thing is uh, they had a very populist uh, 100 days uh, pledge, you know, which I think which is very popular. They want to get rid of the toll. They want to have control over the fuel price, get, get rid of GST. So there were a lot of promises made and, and I think the people are waiting to see this, and Mahade has actually started working on it. He has actually uh, formed two committees. The first committee was Council of the Elders. This council is mainly made of uh, very right-wing, uh, neoliberal people like uh, Robert Koch, the richest man in Malaysia. Mm. Besides, besides, you know, you have uh, other uh, Zeti, Daim Zainuddin, his former crony, you know. Mm. Of course, there's... One interesting inclusion is Jomo, which is more seen as a left-wing uh, academician. Yes, he is, isn't, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, so that, that is the elders. And then when a lot of... So it looks very... Uh, the first two days, Mahade was trying to say that, you know, make the businesses business community happy. He was saying that, don't worry, you know, we are working on foreign investment and we'll be ensuring those who have been unnecessarily taxed, you know, they will pay back your money, you know, was giving confidence to the market uh, compared to resolving others' issues. 
But a few days after that, two days after that, he formed another committee, which is called a uh, committee to on institutional change. And okay. I think this is what a lot of people are hoping for, you know. And Ambiga, Shait Faruqi, uh, some of the Casey Wara, some very prominent uh, good people are yeah. in this committee. Mm-hmm. So we hope finally there will be some institutional change because if not, it's just going to, you know, Coke, Pepsi, Cola kind of change. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's either Pepsi or Coke type thing, isn't it? So the, the key yeah. thing now is, you know, Mahadev said that once the royal pardon was given to Anwar, he should be able to come into um, the PM's position. Now he said it's going to be two years. Is there some legal stuff there that people are not aware of? Because he's not an elected member of parliament. So how can he be the prime minister is a question. See, if he wants to be the prime minister, he has to go, he has to become a member of parliament. That's At right. He needs to stand for election. Mm. And, and as most people expect, uh, one Aziza will again uh, give in. You know, she will vacate the seat for him to stand for a by-election. But then uh, Anwar yesterday, in a number of interviews, uh, the similar question was asked to him. And he said he's in no hurry. Uh, he said he's going to go overseas to do some lecturing in some on, on Islam. And, you know, he's no, he's no hurry in uh, resuming the post. We're not very sure because, uh, and also I think at this point of time, a lot of Malaysians are actually very hopeful that Mahathir will continue. Really? Uh, It's not like people are hoping that Anwar will take over, you know, because people feel that, you know, Mahathir is is very great, you know, a lot of people have forgotten the 22 years of history. Yes, he was actually known as the 10% Prime Minister at one time, wasn't he? Yeah, but you know, the whole thing as it is, some feel that he has, uh, he has you know, at this age, he has, he's, a, he's a reform man, he's, you know, he's trying to undo what he has done, you know, and uh, and because he, he miraculously won the election, and, it, and then it put all his critics, you know, including us, you know, in a situation where, you know, yeah, you have to admit that he did it, you know, something which was seen as quite impossible, because the question was whether he could bring in the rural melee votes. A lot of people were very skeptic, skeptical about it, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there was a huge swing. That is why the nation done uh, by Najib, just in order to ensure that, you know, he's, he's made most of the seats, like a super Malay majority seats, ensure, to ensure Amno won, you know. But because there was a shift in the Malay voting patterns, Amno lost quite badly. So do you think that the the shift in Malay vote is mainly because of the uh, one MDB affair? No, I think the if most of the polls here show it's because of the people are suffering because of the GST, because of the fuel fuel price, cost of living. Felda settlers are very unhappy with uh, what was happening in Felda, and uh, a lot of people were quite quite unhappy. You know, so when when Mahadev said about I will get rid of GST. I think that was a lot of rural people were quite uh, happy then. Mm. So, it, and you know, interestingly, if you look at the government servant, you know, because the bulk of Amno votes come from government servants, and most of them, at least half of them would have voted for the opposition, quite unprecedented. And it shows that, you know, they, uh, there was a real shift, brave shift, you know, even from those voting in the government to vote for the opposition. Mm, that is actually a curious point because he uh, he's walked into this coalition now, or he formed uh, this coalition now, which has the Partika Adilan, DAP, 
Parti Peribumi Persatu Malaysia, which is his party, isn't it? And there's Amana, and there's one more, which is the uh, Parti Warisan Sabah. So, Parti Warisan Sabah seems to be slightly outside that tight coalition. How is he going to keep them all happy? That's the question. And also, PAS is also there, wanting the Sharia law. So there's there's a lot of other complicated issues in that lot. You see, without without Warisan uh, and without PAS, actually, the Pakatan Harapan has already got a simple majority. Okay. So, uh, but now with Warisan in it, it's of course much a larger majority. And I think... Uh, they have to fulfill some of the promises they made on, on Sabah, especially on the on the Malaysian agreement. And I think that is a very crucial thing and, and about giving back oil royalty to Sabah. Hmm. So I think this is this were the promises they made. And this is part of the hundred days promise, you know? Yeah. Because once once the Malaysian agreement is rectified, I think the Sabahans will be happy, you know, Warisan will be happy. Yeah. And as for past I think yesterday Anwar in his speech talking about capturing uh, Kelantan and Ternano in the yeah. next election. Yes. So I think I think at the moment there is no nothing about working together with PAS because this Amana is the alliance with uh, Pakatan Harapan. Yes. yes. They will not. They are the splinter party of PAS. Hmm. So I think I think he's at the moment he's quite stable actually. But what is worrying is that initially there were a lot of people were jumping over from Barisan into Persatu. Hmm. And but now Mahade has put a stop to it because of massive uh, public uh, pressure. You know, a lot of people said you are becoming Barisan 2.0. Exactly. And you know, and and now Mahade has acknowledged that. Yeah. One thing now is responding a bit more to criticism. Hmm. Even the fake news. The first day Mahade said that we will review it. Then everyone said, what about why you earlier promised you will repeal it? Then he agreed that he's going to repeal it. You know. So he's responding to public pressure much more now than he ever did in the previous uh, stint of uh, a PM position he had, yeah? Yeah, it looks like that. But, you know, you, you will never can predict Mahathir. Yes, he's, he's, <laughs> a, he's a cunning fox, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, you can never predict him, and I think uh, that is him, you know, because uh, his, his, for his age is totally in control. There's hardly a cabinet now, but he's like a one-man army making uh, decisions, uh, raiding uh, Najib's house, you know, stopping people from leaving the country. You know, so many executive uh, decisions have been made in the last few days. Yes. You know, uh, he's opened up the probe on MDP, has uh, asked the auditors, he has done so many things without even a cabinet in place. So, of course, people are quite happy, you know. They say, well, this is uh, some calling the Iron Man, you know. <laughs> Lord of Almost thing. like a, a, a benevolent dictator type situation, isn't it? It's become a huge uh, following. He has now a huge following. I think at this point of time, he's much more popular than Anwar. Hmm. And, and I think Anwar realizes that. That's why he's not like immediately trying to come into the same Yeah, yeah. Uh, run the show. Hmm. And the, the other question we have is that um, he is pandering to the neoliberals to a large extent, while he seems to be listening to the people at this stage. Well, as you said, the the first 100 days is always telling. But what happens after those 100 days is the question, isn't it? Because DAP, which is very much um, a business-oriented party because it's made up of uh, Chinese businessmen anyway, 
um, how much is he going to give the Chinese community and how much is he going to lose uh, with the, uh, the the Malay community, which has thrown its weight behind him? That's going to be a, a tricky situation for him, isn't it? Yeah, actually, because he named uh, Lin Guaneng as the financial minister. Yes. And I think, uh, and he has been talking about, you know, the first thing I think people were worried about China, because under Najib, Najib made some huge investment with China. Yes. And Mahadi criticized him for that. But mm. now Mahadi is sort of making uh, Chinese uh, capital at ease by saying, you know, we are not going to take drastic action. We are going to keep the promises made by the previous government which is okay, you know, so he's trying to make some kind of deal with, with, uh, with China for example hmm. so, so I think, I think, yeah, there will be a big uh, problem, but you know on other issues like the TPPA and all that, I think Mahathir has been very consistently opposing TPPA even before, you know, so what, you what know, is the TPPA, uh, Aru? the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement which was, oh, yes. uh, oh the TPPA so on on international trade on on this kind of things, Mahadev is actually much uh, better, much on the left on on those kind of issues. Yeah, he's always but been yeah very yeah. nationalistic. So, yeah. Yeah. So so that sense, you know, he's much of course better than Najib if you look at his international policies on Palestine, many issues, you know. Yeah. And any any uh, discussion on the the law that that replaced the internal security um, laws, the ISA, yeah. the, the, under his does hasn't said anything about the replacement of that law. You know how yeah. it was replaced later. Yeah, actually they have one law called SOSMA, mm. but uh, SOSMA was politically it was used two times. One with the Maria Chin, one was between. Uh, and was lawyer, sorry, Mahadev's lawyer. You went in and so did Mandip Singh. All of you guys were in prison, weren't you? No, no, but we were, they didn't use the SOSMA law on us, you see. Oh, okay. They used, uh, but this SOSMA law, uh, because now they formed this institutional uh, committee on institutional change. Yes. One, one, of the, one of the things they've said is they'll repeal all uh, detention without trial laws. Okay. So, so again, you know, that's another thing. Uh, it is in their manifesto. There is three laws, SOSMA, POTA, FOCA, mm-hmm. which, is, which are all has room for detention without trial. Mm. So we have to again, you know, ensure that they repeal these laws. Yeah. Okay. And in relation to Indians, now the Indians have not been mentioned at all in this whole election. It's just Chinese, Malay communities that have been mentioned uh, big time. So where are the Indian community on this? No, but actually nearer to the elections, uh, the, the Indians, polit- political uh, leaders, have come out with a 25-point uh, demand. Like a manifesto. <laughs> Their own manifesto, yes. Then, actually, we are, in the PSM, are quite uh, uneasy with all these racial groupings coming up with their own manifesto, you see. Mm. Because I think a policy should... Be, should should be colorblind and you know, should go across the board, you know, mm. based on needs. Sure. But but the but the so you know because Mahadev was of course in his many in the main manifesto of Pakatan Harapan, they put in a lot of things, of, you know, because they want to get the Malay votes. They have, you know made a lot of promises, you know, some of it very unknown-like promises. Yeah. And then I think the Indian community started to make noise, and then now then they had another manifesto, something like a twenty-five point. Uh, thing they will do, you know, that covers like the IC, you know, the, you know rate IC, citizenship, yes. mm. uh, those kind of things. 
So, so I think that's another thing which will be, I think the Indian groups will be monitoring it as well. Mm, and especially Tamil schools in the rural areas suffer enormously because of the biased funding um, strategy adopted. Yes. Yeah, they are all uh, not fully government aided, and I think that is one of the demands put forward by the Indian groups. Okay. So, so from now, PSM is going to play the role of um, trying to pressure the government to keep it keep to the promises that they have made. Yeah, that'll be the role you guys will be playing. Actually, we are quite pleased with the overall outcome of the election, simply okay. because you know, because before this, you can't really talk about a third voice or a third alternative or a third force. Yes. Simply because people want to get rid of the one-party system. Hmm. So now when that is finished with, I think we can actually really put forward alternate views, you see. That's right. Because, you know, because the illusion of, you know, getting Amu BN out is already done with, you know. So yes. It's a huge, so huge change, isn't it? Uh, 61 years of torture. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's a, it's a quite a big relief because of course every election will end up, you know, a lot of people will be talking about, look at the big picture, we get rid of them first, look at the big picture, you know. So yep. they do not see a left or socialist agenda at all. Yep. So now now the vacuum, I mean, now the room is clear, you know, the, the door has been opened and we can actually, uh, it's more easier for us to propagate uh, what we wanted to do. Here. Yes, it gives you that dem- democratic space, doesn't it? Yes, and I think we, are, we have to keep up with uh, some of our campaigns. Yep. One was the, we are pushing for 1,500 minimum wage this year, because yep. this year we are reviewing the minimum wage. Mm. What, will, what is the current minimum wage, Aru? Sorry? What is the, the current the cur- minimum wage? Current is uh, 1,000. 1,000, so that's a good jump, okay. Yeah, current is 1,000, but uh, both the BN and the opposition, uh, sorry, Barisan and Pakatan, mm-hmm. both have actually pledged 1,500, but they're talking now, it's about in five years' time, you know. Oh, <laughs> God, that's a it's, long time to wait. And Bank Nagara uh, recently came up with a study that uh, they said in, in Klang Valley, a person should earn 2,700. Hmm. It's much uh, higher than what we are proposing. Yes. So I think I think these are one of the issues. Of course, there are other issues about contract workers and government. government. So there's a lot of campaigns. Hmm. I think we'll, we'll have, you know, we can push this now. Mm. And the trade unions, I guess, will be part of the discussion? See, the trade union movement is actually extremely weak. And before the, just before the election, the chairman, the president and the secretary general gave two conflicting statements. Secretary general said we are supporting the Pakatan government. Mm-hmm. The Pakatan, and then the president said no, we are supporting the Parisan. Oh dear. <laughs> so that's how... how problematic the movement is. But anyway, I think, of course, uh, Mahadi has made so much of laws to curb trade unionism before, you know. Mm. And, and I think this is going to be a big challenge. People thought, you know, it's going to be easy, you know, because under Mahadi was when we had the most Yes, that's uh, right. Laws forward against trade unions. It's interesting how people forget so easily. But anyway, that's a great analysis, Arul. So thank you so much for being available. And we'll keep an eye on how all this unfolds in the next uh, few months, eh? Yes. Okay. Please keep, keep at the lookout. Yeah. I will, I will. What is, what is happening here? Yes, thank you so okay. much. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye.
And welcome back to Green Left Weekly Radio on 3CR 855 on Dal. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you did, there is a way of helping keeping the, helping to keep this program on air. Um, there is, if you're on Facebook, uh, you'll see there's a fundraiser um, icon called um, Give Now. Uh, you can just re- ring the station straight, 85, uh, it's 94198377. I was going to give you the phone number. Uh, this, uh, no, the dial number actually. And, um, anyway, the number is 84198377. So if you could put your hands in your pocket and donate generously to keep this program on air, that'll be just wonderful. Thank you very much for that. Now, that was our children from, um, Malaysia. He is a spokesperson for the Party Socialist Malaysia. And things are unfolding at a rapid speed in Malaysia. And they've got a hundred um, point program or manifesto they are trying to implement to, to keep the population happy. So that is something we'll be keeping a very close eye on as it unfolds. Now we go back to news, Jacob. Yeah, so I have a number of um, international stories I want to share from um, the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, and that is kind of a bit of a discussion about what's sort of happening in Iran. Um, and this is an article that focuses... You mean Iran? Iran, yeah. <laughs> you, you, sound, you sound like Trump. Yeah. <laughs> Iran. Apparently there's a westernised, bastardised way of saying yeah, it. The Iranians call it Iran, so let's stick Iran. with the Iranian pronunciation. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not my fault. I, keep, I've, I, I watch the news. <laughs> no, no, no. Iran. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, Trump's um, made kind of a made announcement that, you know, recently that um, Trump will withdraw, I mean, that you, the United States will withdraw from the 2015 nuclear deal with and Iran. Indeed, I thought. And um, it re- and will re- reimpose economic sanctions. Um, you know that will intensify geo um, political conflicts in the region. Um, and so one of the reasons rationales that Trump gave for this is on May 8th he called the 2015 nuclear deal defective at its core. He cited as in evidence. Um, Iranian um, intelligence documents released by Israel on April the 30th, with where Israeli um, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, claimed that these documents conclusively prove um, that Iran uh, um, continued pursuing a nuclear weapons program despite the 2015 agreement negotiated with the Barack Obama administration along with five other governments. But of course, the independent report um, by the International Atomic Energy Agency which is tasked with monitoring um, Iran's um, compliance with the deal, said there were no in, uh, indications that Iran had violated the agreement. In fact, Netanyahu's evidence dealt with Iran's past nuclear efforts. It contained no allegation that Iran is currently um, pr- producing nuclear weapons or is otherwise in violation of its 2015 agreement. Um, so I think I guess this, that's sort of the summary of kind of what's happening. There's kind of a bit of a deeper analysis in the article, um, specifically focusing on how you know how this is going to po- um, really potentially negatively impact on uh, on the Iranian people. But then there's also uh, other international implications, and of course Trump ripping up this um, deal could serve as a way to you know 
more tightly bind together the regimes of Trump and Hatu and Saudia Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um, since the start of the the presidency. Um, Trump has embraced, uh, you know, an aggressive America first nationalism and warmongering. He has staffed his cabinet with protectionists and hawks who call for confrontation with both with North Korea, Iran and China. And he hosts and of course, recently appointed security advisor John Bolton has publicly advocated preemptive strikes and regime change in Iran. And of course, Mike Pompey, um, the former CIA director and recently appointed Secretary of State, has also advocated ripping up the nuclear deal. And of course, the US's unilateral withdrawal from the deal puts the US at odds with European allies, France, Britain, Germany. Um, the, the, the nuclear deal is technically still in place as long as the rest of the P5 plus one countries do, re-impo- do not reimpose sanctions. And of course, uh, this is all happening in the context of the US seeking to kind of negotiate a nuclear deal with North Korea. Uh, and and of course, there's also the, the implication that, you know, Trump's turn from pursuing stabilization in the Middle East towards open hostility with Iran pays away for greater conflict and chaos in the region. And the major victors in this moment are US warmongers, the Israeli Saudi Alliance and Iran's um, hardliners. So, yeah, um, and. Yeah. Not good. Yes, not good. <laughs> <laughs> not good at all. Um, Sticking with the U.S., I thought I'll just um, talk to this article that uh, is in the latest screen, which I find particularly interesting. At least it's my um, interest. That it's about Martin Luther King Jr., who took on capitalism and was killed. So this year marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, um, 1968 the murder of one of the great black leaders of the time by white racist, and that is other than Malcolm X, who's my hero, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, so, back to Mark, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he took on the white racist, um, you know, with the complicity of the U.S. government, most likely the FBI, um, stunned all African Americans in the country, and, and he was shot. He was shot. Just like, you know, I mean, Americans and their bloody guns, I, I never get it. Anyway, immediately violent uprisings broke out in hundreds uh, of cities and towns. And these were most widespread of the uprisings that marked the era of the civil rights movement and the, the rise of black power. African-American singer Nina Simone swiftly wrote a song um, titled Why the King of Love is Dead. And um, this is a little bit of the uh, the lyrics. What's going to happen now in all our cities? And my people are rising. They are living in lies, even if they have to die, even if they have to die. At the moment, they know what life is. Even the one moment that you know um, what life is, if you have to die, it's all right. Of course, you know what life is. You know what freedom is for one moment of your life. So those lines was amazing about about that um, the sense of freedom you can feel even at that that one moment you know mm. um, as I, I guess I can equate it to a little bit like what the Malaysians mm. are feeling in Malaysia after their yeah. toppled government's been in power for 61 years. But scenes of uprisings were broadcast on TV in the U.S. Uh, one captured the nation national Im- um, impact a large uh, a largely black Washington D.C. the Capitol buildings 
were particularly obscured by rising smoke from the burning city. The sentiment um, was, what if they, in the in the parlance of uh, the time, the white power structure would kill King, um, the advocate of non-violence. They could do this to a black person. So the article goes on to talk a lot yeah. more about his role, um, the time he was active, how he was able to see the struggle for racial equality uh, rising, and he was at the lead of it. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was an amazing period. Yeah, um, I think. Um, I think just a few comments I'd like to make is. Yeah, do. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the. I think there's a has been kind of a real attempt to kind of de-radicalize um, Martin Luther King <laughs> by um, the right wing politics. And yeah. in fact, I remember the most disgraceful thing that happened during 2014 um, when the Black Lives Matter protests were, you know, blowing up in in Ferguson. Um, Fox News um, basically tried to attack. Um, the protesters of Black Lives Matter, claiming that they weren't following the spirit of Martin Luther King and, you know, non-violent peaceful protests, despite the fact that... And they would know. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Despite the fact that Fox News, you know, vilified and attacked Hmm. Martin Luther King um, when he was... He was was assassinated. Just like, like, um, you know, Malcolm X. Hmm. He was assassinated. Yeah. Any black person who raises their hand as a, a leader that's, that's attracting massive popular support, they kill. Hmm. And I think there's also, there's also the fact that people want to, they, people actually don't want to acknowledge that both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, um, although they weren't always anti-capitalist, yeah. were actually gradually, Malcolm X was. Um, gradually coming to anti-capitalist conclusions. And actually, we're on the topic of Malcolm X, it's always fascinating how, um, you know, what I always find funny is there's always this false dichotomy placed between both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Like Martin Luther King was the good one because you know he participated in what nonsense and um, peaceful protests. You really protests. think people feel like that? I don't. Yeah. Oh, that's how the that's how the that's how the kind of mainstream mess um, press I likes to likes to it. No. Um, but I also think it also ignore they also like to ignore kind of the evolution of Malcolm X's political thought. Um, in fact, you know Malcolm X actually spoke at actually spoke at radical conferences, socialist conferences. Mm, mm. And there's also... He was also a Muslim, you know, and uh, then he renounced it. But yeah. And there's also the fact that people want to emphasise that he was um, for, you know, black separationism. I mean, he was early in his life, but they're actually ignoring the fact that he actually went for a gradual evolution. Of course, as he's going through evolution and coming to sort of real anti-capitalist conclusions, mm. that's just as he got assassinated, similar yes. to and that's Martin Luther King. That's when he was most dangerous. That's yes. why they killed him. Yes, when, he was, when, his, uh, when his views were not as dangerous to the establishment, yes. they yes. let him live, but then when, as soon as he's... They're sharpshooters on them. <laughs> they know exactly when they get him. But it's interesting, Martin Luther King, as you say, you know, like Malcolm X, was um, evolving into a socialist the similar way I think Martin Luther King was also doing that and this is his words he described the black population as living on a uh, open quote lonely island of poverty surrounded by an ocean of material prosperity close quote and he also added that triple ghetto of race um, poverty and human misery the movement must address itself to the restructuring of the whole of American society there are 40 million poor people here mm. and you can actually then try, 
you, you just transport that into Australia, you know, and, and you go to the same situation. There is a, there's a sea of wealth in Australia, the third or fourth richest country in the world, and you have people who are homeless. The situation is 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 parallel. It, it it's amazing how you know politically you you can link all this, and people gain a lot of education of try, reading these sort of articles and in books mm. on him. So it's yeah. just something that I thought people might be interested in. Yeah, probably and, the um, probably my favourite kind of Malcolm X moment was that um, moment where he met up with um, Fidel Castro. Oh, yes. In fact, um, Malcolm X actually did quite a lot in terms of trying to build, you know, solidarity with uh, the kind Cuba. of third world and, yep. and, and you know, acknowledged, you know, Cuba's role in supporting third world kind of African liberation movements. Yeah. Yeah, I thought of something to say there and then I forgot. Mm. His, um, it, it's the oppression that drives people, I guess, you know, um, to draw these conclusions, and, and it, it does radicalize people who who have that leadership quality in them and have the, the the understanding of of how the system works and want to start challenging the system, then you've got issues with the CIA or whichever country you are in the secret secret um, agents of that country. Okay, now moving on, Britain. I think we talked about the council elections yes, last time. Yes, we did last week. Yeah. And and it's interesting um, that John McDonnell, um, Labour's shoulder chancellor of the Exchequer, declared Marxism is a force of change today. As he addressed the, the closing session of the conference in London, marking Karl Marx's 200th birthday on May the 5th. Isn't that interesting? Mm. It's a very conservative organisation. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, McDonnell, a close um, comrade of uh, Labour Socialist leader Jeremy Corbyn, received stormy applause for a speech in which he paid tribute to the revolutionary thinker and noted that public interest in his ideas had soared since the bankers' crash in 2008. The event at the University of London was organised by Marx Memorial Liberty Library. Um, it featured a day of discussions on Marxist approaches to everything from neoliberalism and public services through to the rise of the India, Indian far right under Prime Minister Modi and the nature of Latin American um, socialism. It also discussed the forms of oppression and exploitation based on class and race. So I guess you'll find the, the presentations on, on the web if you look for it. So it was a conference organized by the Marx Memorial Library in London. Hmm. So that would be an interesting um, reading hmm. for, for people well, who want to... Well, I think um, with John McDonald, he, um, he actually has um, was previously, um, has before he joined the Labour Party, he was actually part of... Uh, Radical revolutionary socialist organisations. In mm. fact, talking to a socialist in the UK, he kind of described John um, McDonald as uh, is is basically he's basically a Trotskyist. Um, he much more of a say in that comes from that political tradition than say Jeremy Corbyn, yeah, who was who has probably been always been part of the Labour Party. And John McDonald also has before he became Chancellor also played a strong role in. Venezuela solidarity. Oh, yeah. I guess it's interesting because the, the article it says towards the end it says um, the uh, Daily Mail prom, you know, came up with a furious, furious attack on him, of course. It noted that his attendance has been swiftly condemned by Simply Red singer Mick Hucknall, 
who said the uh, the Hayes and Harlington MP does not belong in the Labour Party. He probably doesn't. <laughs> he should have a far left party that can support uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, that would have been better. Images accompanying the article slammed McDonald as a self-confessed socialist and accused him of supporting left uh, left-wing newspaper. Um, the Morning Star picturing him visiting the paper stall at the conference. So this is all sort of... Well, that's funny because um, (laughs) Jeremy Corbyn um, used to write regularly for the Morning Star. Like, he used to have even a weekly column, so... Yeah, but but Jeremy Corbyn, from the very beginning in the 70s when he joined the Labour Party, already declared that he was a socialist. There's no secret about Jeremy Corbyn's political leanings, absolutely none from the very beginning. And he worked in the, um, the nuclear disarmament, um, uh, organizer, I think it's NDP or whatever it's called. Um, no, not a party, it's, uh, it's an organization. And he has always made very clear that he is a socialist. So that's, that's it's not a secret, it's no big deal. Anyway, quick announcement, then we go on to the, um, announcements. Um, yes, fight for your mic, and we are fighting for our mics here. Um, please uh, dig deep and donate to our program to keep it on air. Hopefully you're enjoying the, the programs as we podcast it regularly as well. You can listen to it um, at, at leisure later on. So we are into the um, announcement section, calendar. Jacob, go. Okay, so... Um, Tonight, there will be uh, Stop Idani, Eyes Up Northern uh, event, um, which I think is part of um, a sort of speaking tour. Um, that's going to be at 7pm at the Uniting Church in 212-214 Sydney Road in Brunswick. Um, on Tomorrow, on Saturday, May the 19th, there will be the Palestinian Rally, 70 Years of Nakba, at 12 noon at the State Library, and it's organised by Solidarity for Palestine. Um, there will be an art exhibition, War Never Again, um, at 3pm, featuring the works of Michael Ling, um, I am Arthur Boyd, um, Jeff Raglis, Terry Denton, Billy O'Kelly, etc., and so on. And Rod Contact will be opening the exhibition. So that'll be 3 p.m. at the Step Arts Gallery, 62 Ligon Street, Carlton. And of course, all proceeds from the exhibition will be donated to ICANN and MAPA to support the vital work they are doing to ban nuclear weapons and promote peace. There'll be a fundraiser free CR radiophone uh, with live music by the Amazonics, etc. Uh, $10 entry at 7 p.m. on Saturday at 16 to 22 Cross Street in Brunswick East. And it's hosted by the program Completada. Completada. Bailable. It's it's a difficult word, anyway. And um, on Sunday, May the 20th, there'll be the Music Freedom Time Party, um, which is celebrating unity, alliance, community, commitment and connection that has led to the 16th anniversary of independence for Timor and the unyielding fight for freedom for West Papua. And, of course, that will be at 2 p.m. at the Gasso Media Hotel at 484 Smith Street in Collingwood. Um, there'll be music, uh, more of another band, uh, Gig Night, um, Gig for Choice in Ireland. Come along to the Gig for Choice, a Sunday sesh to raise money for the Together for Yes campaign. Your years will be treated to some of the finest and most talented Irish and Australian musicians passionate about repealing the eighth, um, which is relates to Ireland. And that's at 6.30pm at the Handsome Her, which is at 206 Sydney Road in Brunswick. 
Um, there'll be a book launch, um, Capitalism, a Crime Story, and that, um, which is at 7pm at uh, Room 1, Tuesday, May the 22nd, at the New International Bookshop in Trades Hall 54, Victoria Street, Carlton. Um, and Thursday, May the 12th, there'll be a public meeting, Let's Talk About West Papua, and that will be at the Shreds Hall at 6pm on Thursday, May the 24th. And that'll explore the Australian government aid um, to Indonesia and the police and military, and they're refusing to tell you... um, how many taxpayer, how much of the taxpayer money is being given to the, the Indonesian military to conduct training and intelligence operations? Now, I just want to go back one minute to the 17th of, oh, that's yesterday, sorry. The SO workers, actually, uh, we should mention the SO workers because that has been a mammoth historical battle has been going on for over 320 days now. They're still out, so people who um, have heard this many times, please go to the Facebook. Um, and they are open for funding um, and any sort of donation they can to support their families while they are waiting to uh, have the EBA sorted out. That's the um, SOUGL battle, which is one of the longest, I think, in the history of um, Australia. Okay, moving on. There is a um, public meeting, the case for progressive populism. David McKnight will talk about his new book. Populism can be a dirty word. Um, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump have certainly um, given it a bad name. So rather than associating it with demagogy and exclusion, um, he will discuss an alternative view. Um, a, you know, it might be we better see it as a backlash against free market globalization and so on. This questions he's trying to answer rather difficult questions, I have to say. So that's at the International Bookshop, Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. May 26th, on next Saturday, community protests, stop Labour's public housing, sell-offs, um, 12 noon, on the corner of Walker and High Street, Northcote, um, public housing defence uh, network and Victorian socialists will be um, involved in this uh, protest. June the 2nd, which is a Saturday after that, the Big Red Book Fair coming to International Bookshop and there will be a barbecue and lots of books to buy and browse through. 54 Victoria Street again in Carlton. The 7th of June, um, the bottom dollar welfare, quarantine in remote Australia. Activists, academics, and ordinary citizens who have lived with the CDC discuss, discuss the scheme. Does the evidence support the extension of the program? Is there a dark side to the regime? And is choosing the locations of the scheme to be rolled out? In, is remoteness a proxy for race? Um, is racism part of this whole um, program that is being um, Unrolled or, or actually, it is being cut back in this new new um, budget as well. Um, so the the discussions will be at the Wheeler Centre at 6:15 p.m., 176 Little Lonsdale Street, and bookings are essential. So you have to go to the bookings to get it. So it's called Bottom Dollar: colon, Welfare Quarantine is remote in remote Australia. Now. Um, 16th of June, Saturday, 
the Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, will Trump tweet us into oblivion? Um, as is tradition, Rod Talk will um, chair this or MC this, this event. Uh, there's Sean Bedlam, Fred Hamster, Helen Child, Gab Hogan, Kirsty Mack and Morven Smith. So that'll be at the Brunswick Town Hall, a corner of Sydney and Dawson Streets. 24th of June, which is a Sunday, um, we will uh, have a rally in March, United Stop the Right, 11 a.m. Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and um, Victoria Streets. So there's a conference on the 7th of July, Australian Refugees Action Network, at the Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation Building, 535 Elizabeth Street. Um, so we'll give you more details closer to the event. Now, the, there's another conference of students and sustainability on the 7th of July, and that's a Wednesday. So you might want to um, keep an eye out for that, and we'll give you more details um, about it. Now, the other announcement I want to make is about two announcements. Uh, is Renas Resonance Live, Bart Willoughby and Guess at the Fitzroy Town Hall, the 2nd of June. Doors open at 7 p.m. The show starts at 7.30, a Reconciliation Week event. So tickets available through um, Ticket Bow. Ticket Bow, B-O, yeah, Ticket Bow. Uh, Ticket to Bow, so that's a new one. Anyway, so if you want to have a uh, seat at this show, it's uh, Residence Live with Bart Willoughby and guests. And that will be available on the, um, so he also is releasing a CD, by the way, sorry. And um, that would be uh interesting um, musical event to go to. And one more announcement is next Saturday, the band um, Juan Chaco uh, playing at the venue called Long Play. And they will play, they'll launch the new album, Aquamaster. Uh, and I'll give you a taste of it towards the end of the program. Okay, thank you, Jacob. And that's um, the um, next um, interview online. And um, the speakers uh, will be speaking about Palestine. And the person is from the um, Palestine Justice... I'll, I'll get the title correctly in a minute. Jacob's left the paper somewhere else. Um, but the person who the spokesperson for this organization is Catherine um, Kelly, and she's from here we go Australians for Justice and Peace in Palestine. So here's Catherine. Morning, Catherine. Sorry about that muck up there. <laughs> Welcome to 3CI, and thank you for offering to speak about this. So tell us about your organization and the role it's playing at the moment. Well, Australians for Justice and Peace in Palestine is an organisation in Canberra and we've been going since uh, 2002. Um, it was started... Um, I, I visited Palestine in 2002. When I came back, I was so appalled. Um, we founded the organisation and it has been holding sort of educational events and rallies since that time. We had an, a rally in uh, Civic in Canberra on the 21st of April and um, that was protesting the detention of children but then the attacks on Gaza happened as well so we were also protesting that and that was a, a, a good rally 
Mm. And you want to give us what your organization is doing, given the current situation in Palestine where more than 60 people have been killed and more than 2,000 have been injured? Yes, well, as I say, we had the rally there. There is another rally this Saturday, which is which our chair is speaking at. So that's what we've been doing. And I've you know, written a letter to the Canberra Times and um, put out a media release. So we're speaking out as much of it about it as we can. Mm-hmm. And are you in touch with any of the ministers? Since you're in Canberra, you'll have access to some of the ministers at least. Um, well, we don't really have any more access than anybody else. Um, most of the time, those ministers are not in Canberra. They're back in their electorates. Um, but we have uh, contacted the ministers on many occasions and written letters and asked them to, to stop apologising for the Israeli occupation and to and to take a more balanced uh, position, which is actually being critical of Israel, because Israel is an illegal occupier. And the attacks on Gaza over the last five weeks have killed um, more than 100 people and just over 60 last Monday, and thousands have been injured. So uh, they claim they're defending their borders, but they won't actually state what their borders are. Um, the borders, are they the petition borders of the 1947 UN resolution? No. Uh, are they the 67 borders uh, after the war? And no, because they've kept taking all Palestinian land after that. So it's not a question of defending their borders, these attacks in Gaza. It is uh, a, a fact of enforcing their military occupation and their occupation and inhuman siege of Gaza, which is just a giant prison. Hmm. I've got Jacob here with me in the studio who'd like to ask you a question, Catherine. Yeah. So my question is, um, for your kind of organisation and in terms of your campaign, what do you think are, what are kind of the demands that you, we think, um, you think should be put to um, the Australian government? Um, because, you know, I think the Australian government is quite compliant in, you know, the this sort of occupation of Israel. Uh, well, Palestine. You know, Palestine by <laughs> Israel. And... And they're completely compliant in the kind of continued genocide and um, dispossession of the Palestinian people. They certainly are. And we have been calling for a long time for them to stop you know, just following the US in the UN resolutions. We generally are one of about six countries that vote with the US on any criticism, vote against any criticism of Israel in the, U- in the UN. That's right. But So we are, you know, calling for them at the moment to... Uh, call the Israeli ambassador and demand a halt to the killings of the Gazans. We also would uh, call for a, any military cooperation with um, Israel to be stopped, any sales or purchases of Israel equipment. We want a complete boycott of any military uh, cooperation or trade with Israel. Mm. And has the government in any shape or form answered you or called you to have a meeting in, in, no. in all the, the, the requests? No it's, no, it's very hard to get a meeting with any of the ministers or any of the senior people on either side, really. Um, there is a group called uh, Parliamentary Friends of Palestine, which is quite good, and they have um, events and talks there quite often, and, and that's a cross-party organisation. So there is some you know, support for justice for Palestine across the parties, but it's certainly not strong enough. And Australia is not being a good friend of Israel by just, you know, following on and not criticising them. Julie Bishop has been appalling in relation to settlements. 
um, and has failed to criticise the settlements and the increase in settlers in the West Bank. Um, and the hope for a two-state solution is just gone now. Uh, people like the Palestinian negotiation, negotiator Sayed Erekat and also respected Israeli journalist Gideon Levy and also a settler leader called Yaakov Katz, they all agree there's no hope for a two-state solution. So why isn't it not more discussion other options and one I've heard uh, discussed briefly was uh, something like a Switzerland cantons where you could have Jewish-Israeli cantons and you have Palestinian cantons and that would be a federation across the whole of Israel-Palestine because there's not two countries now. There's one country in, with one group of people completely disenfranchised and oppressed in that uh, area. Mm. So yeah. we need some Sorry. more um, positive uh, alternatives like that that could lead to a vision of peace and people living together, um, you know, peacefully. Mm. It's interesting because the human rights violations by Israel against the Palestinians is absolutely gross. And this is not like today or yesterday. It's been going on for years and years and years. And yet we have um, the, the UN Human Rights Committee that doesn't necessarily altogether criticize Palestine, uh, uh, the, the Israelis or ask them to withdraw from Palestinian um, areas. There's a constant occupation and increasing occupation of the Palestine, Palestinian land. What does your organization say to all that? Well, we say that, it's, that Israel is an apartheid state, and this has got to stop, and we agree. I mean, there have been so many people who've called this out. Nelson Mandela says, we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, I know firsthand that Israel has created an apartheid reality within its borders and through its occupation. US President Jimmy Carter said that the apartheid there was worse than even South Africa. And this UN organisation has said that Israel has established an apartheid regime that oppresses and dominates the Palestinian people. So there's very much, uh, you know, the idea and the reality of Israel as an apartheid state is becoming more widespread and accepted. And we need to really oppose that as it was opposed in South Africa. Um, so the other side of the apartheid is actually the Palestinians within Israel. And there's a book, very good book, by a woman, a Jewish-British woman called Susan, Susan North called The Other Side of Israel, which systematically documents the um, discrimination against Palestinian Israelis who are citizens you know, of Israel and, and how they're discriminated in so many areas of life there. So there's an apartheid system for them as well. Mm. So our government should be condemning this outright but obviously it's not doing that. And one of the reasons, I think, is, uh, you know, political donations. They probably get political donations. Yes. The Israeli lobby is quite, uh, the pro-Israeli government lobby is quite strong here in Australia. And donations, I mean, political donations from any, you know, uh, organisation, corporate body should be outlawed. And then we might have a government that actually works on the basis of what people want rather than what donations. You know, yes. Isn't that across the board, though? It's just yes. it's more and more being exposed. I'm interested in, in what your demands are to the Australian government, which it says that it must immediately call in the Israeli ambassador and protest in the stronger term, strongest terms the killing of the um, Palestinians in Gaza, or you, you state 55, of course, of course it's 60 now, and mm. probably growing, and injuring well, more than 2,000. 
hundred now killed, and including medics. It's just getting worse. Medics, paramedics shot by Israeli snipers, so they know who they're shooting. Yep. And, and you know, in, in relation to this sort of massacre that's happening in, in uh, Palestine, um, and, and there are people who are leaving Palestine and seeking refuge, the refugee situation in, in Australia isn't exactly crash uh, hot, to say the least. Yes. They, and they're not even accepting Palestinians to come to well, our some, shores. Some Palestinians have come here over the years. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a young person at uh, ANU who's doing a PhD, obviously very bright person, who's now an Australian citizen, and there are other Palestinians who have been accepted as refugees. But in general, you know, Australia is not welcoming to many refugees, um, and our treatment of refugees is appalling, particularly those ones on Manus and Nauru. So and I believe there's some Palestinians still stuck in there. I, I believe there are two, but I don't know the numbers. Mm. Yeah. Okay. One thing that uh, really, um, these protests from Gaza are about the right of return. I mean, they have been in this prison with their water polluted, electricity only available a, a few hours a day, inadequate food. They can't get the um, materials they need to rebuild houses after so many attacks on Gaza. So they are desperate. And, and this... Um, International law at the start of uh, the establishment of Israel says that the refugees should be allowed to return. That's UN Resolution 194. And Israel has never complied with that. And our government is always touting about how important international law is. But they don't, they pick and choose what international law they are going to support. That's right. (laughs) They haven't supported. Another one is that uh, Jerusalem is meant to be an international city under the UN Resolution 181. Mm. And that's not talked about today at all, particularly with the US's provocative move of its embassy there. That's right. So that's another international resolution, you know, international law that's... um, Ignored by Australia. Mm. Yes, and Israel is a signatory also to the uh, UN Convention on the Treatment of the Children. Yes. But they say that this shouldn't apply to um, children in the West Bank. Why? Um, they aren't children? <laughs> um, it says that uh, I'm reading from the Defence of Children International Palestine. Um, they say that Israel maintains that it is not obliged to extend international human rights law, including protections outlined in the Convention on the Rights of Children, to Palestinians living in the West Bank. It doesn't say why, but. Um, so it, uh, under that, um, children as young as 11 years old can be imprisoned. Oh. And mainly it's throwing stones. Yes. Which, you know, absolutely. You know, that would be, nobody would accept that here. Mm. 97% of children who are arrested have no lawyer or family member present during interrogation. Two-thirds of them are strip-searched. Yes. And 75% are subject to physical violence. I mean, this is absolutely appalling and inhuman. Mm. The occupation is just... Um, it's horrendous. And also 45% of unemployment rate is just... Un- it's unfathomable. Yes, I would have thought it was actually higher than that. Probably um, is, yeah. yeah. You think well, I went there in 2002 and 2003, and just some of the small examples I saw of how the Israelis there within the West Bank were trying to make Palestinians' lives unbearable, just for, for no good reason, certainly not the of Israel, but one example was we were. I was with a group of um, about eight of us from trade unions who were there with from the trade union agent a, agency. It was a group tour, 
we were, you know, in the West Bank, the Israelis have many blockages of the road so that Palestinians have to get out and walk. They can't just drive from one area to another. So we had to get out and walk over these humps that they put across the road so cars can't drive over them. Very hot day. We're walking with lots of Palestinians going in and out of Nablus, which is in the middle of the West Bank, nowhere near the Israeli so-called border. And uh, somebody had a donkey cart, which were carrying people who, you know, who couldn't walk uh, these distances because the donkeys could get over the humps and things. And in this one of those donkey carts was a very old man, and we saw these Israeli soldiers force the people to get out of the uh, cart and walk. One of them was a, an old man who looked about 80, walking with a stick. He could hardly walk. These young Israeli soldiers just made them get out and walk for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's... Still, I can't still understand that. It's like violence for the sake of violence, isn't it? It's, it is. It's... They tried to make heartbreaking them to watch. Break their spirit, but they won't do that because the Palestinians, you know, they don't have, particularly ones in Gaza. What do they have to lose? They're living in a misery. That's why they're prepared, I think, to risk their lives in this non-violent protest to push for their right to re- return and and mm. just um, for people to say, okay, if, inter- if international law means anything, they should be able to return. Mm. Thank you. The end to this occupation, which is not going to do Israel any good in the in the long run either. That's right. That's right. And there are a lot of um, Jewish uh, community that is protesting this as well. But we yes, have there to. There are some wonderful Jewish, um, you know, people in Israel who are obviously against their government's policy, and, and Gideon Levy and some other journalists, Amira has ones like that, and they are fantastic in the Israeli human rights organization Bet Salem. There's some wonderful people there. So, um, you know, there are wonderful Jewish people who are opposing the Israeli government yep. policy in Israel and around the world. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. we have to um, stop there because we're running very low on time. And but so, thank you so much for your time, Catherine. We can talk a lot more about this. <clears throat> we'll keep a close eye on this and keep in touch. And okay. thanks for offering. Thank you very much. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to uh, our children who offered to give us analysis of the the, um, election fallout in um, Malaysia. And, of course, Catherine Kelly from the Australian Justice and Peace in Palestine. If you missed any part of the program or any previous programs, it will be available on podcast. And don't forget, it is fundraising time for this program. And do ring in and look at our, our donation site, Give Now. It's called Green Left Weekly under Give Now. And I'm going to play Aqua, which is the um, uh, album that's being launched in um, Long Play, which is a venue in Fitzroy, or North Fitzroy, and uh, it's next Saturday. And goodbye and good, good evening. Have a good day.